This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. What is wonderful about great literature is that it transforms the man who reads it towards the condition of the man who wrote it. The discerning words of British novelist E.M. Forster. Hello, I'm Susan Cahill and you're very welcome to Talking Books. Well, it's the August bank holiday weekend, so we're taking it nice and easy nice and slow and enjoying what's best about a lazy bank holiday weekend. We're opening the windows, we're kicking back and revisiting some highlights from the show this year. Today I'm going to introduce you to two smashing writers, men of substance, merit and considerable style. Yes, we're going to meet with two masters of the imagination, award-winning South African novelist Damon Galgut and the deft and debonair John Banville. So let's kick off today's bank holiday special with a true heavyweight, a man known for his panache and unique literary flair, the charming and gloriously intellectual John Banville. In November, I dropped into John's writing room just off Dublin's noisy Happiny Bridge. It's a warm, colourful and intriguing space with lots of art, books, memorabilia and quirky bits and pieces. Perfect for a quality snoop around. Oh, you're very welcome here. Not many people get into this place, I can tell you. I like it here. Even though it's in the middle of the city, it's completely quiet during the day. I only work here from, you know, nine to six in the evening. Sometimes when I come back later in the day to pick up something, I'm astonished at how much noise there is. Because all the people have come back from work and they're having dinner and so on. Which is very nice, but it would be, be a bit disturbing. But there's one very nice thing that uh, over the last few years, a lot of immigrants have moved into the apartments and their children play down in the courtyard after school from about three o'clock on. And they've developed a kind of Esperanto that they speak. And their voices drift up to me and it's pure delight to hear them. I'm not one of those people who gets up at three in the morning to write while everybody else is asleep. I would find that very uncanny. I like to write with the sounds of the world around me. And in this writing room, we have John Banville and Benjamin Black. Can I... Start out by asking you about identity. Oh yes, we all imagine that we are unitary beings, uh, singular creatures, but we're not. We're a, a bundle of personalities loosely gathered together. The example I always use is the man who gets up from the bed of his lover and goes into the street and meets his worst enemy. He's two entirely different people. I think this is a very good thing. This makes life wonderfully interesting. It would be dreadful if we were all just one person. We constantly invent ourselves from morning to night and then when we dream we invent ourselves even more lavishly. So yes, there is no, there's no pilot light burning in there that is me. I invent myself all the time, just as everybody does whether they're aware of it or not. How important is the past to you as a writer? And do you think we actually are really true to our past? Or are we honest in how we think about the past? Well, all novels, if they're written in the past tense, are about the past essentially. Um, the notion that the novel can comment on contemporary events is very new. The great 19th century novelists, all their great novels are historical, said 20, 30, 40 years before their own time. That was accepted as the norm. I think that's still true. I don't think the novel can 
comment on contemporary events because there's no such thing as contemporary events until they become the past. The past fascinates me as to why it is the past or when it is the past. Uh, is an hour ago the past? Is yesterday the past? Last month? It's a bit like those movies that, you know, when they get a bit old, they're just silly and people are wearing silly clothes and have laughable ways of speaking and so on. And then after a certain time, they become classics and we begin to admire the clothes they wear and find rhythms in the way they speak that appeal to us. But when does that happen? When does a movie cross a particular divide and become a classic? And in the same way, when does the past become the past in capital letters? I don't know. So is art in some way trying to recreate the past? Oh, no. I mean, nobody could say what art is. Art is, you know, for every work of art makes art anew, makes definitions anew. So it would be very foolish to try to define what art is. That's one of the delights of it, uh, that you can't say what it is. You know it when you see it, when you hear it, when you feel it, but we can't say what it is. Um, for me, art is, is uh, if it has any function at all, it's to quicken the sense of being alive, both for the artist and for readers or viewers or listeners. Uh, the artist concentrates on the world with extraordinary passion, kind of passion that very few people do. And the objects that are concentrated on don't expect to be noticed in this way. You know, they say, I'm just a stone in the street, I'm just a person passing by. Why are you why are you giving me such attention? And immediately the object concentrated on this it begins to blush. We always blush in self consciousness when we're concentrated on. And it's when we blush that we're at our most vulnerable, our most self revelatory and our most self conscious. So that it seems to me is the task of the artist. <laughs> to make the world blush. Uh, and that's why I spend so much time dealing with objects. People say to me, you know, will you stop telling me about the weather and how things look? And so just tell me the bloody story. And I said, the story is the weather and the way things look and the feel of things, because that's the kind of art that I make. And in crafting your art, in crafting your story, how difficult can it get? And how much of a perfectionist are you about finding the perfect sentence, the perfect mixing of poetry, of fiction, and all the shapes and moods and colours and textures that go into your writing? Well, my own, my old friend, the late John McGowan, used to make a nice distinction. He said that uh, there's verse and there's prose and then there's poetry. Poetry can happen in either. But since we were both prose writers, we used to insist that it happens more often in prose than it does in verse. Again, poetry is something uh, indefinable. It's an essence, it's a luminosity, it's a, a concentration. And that's what I try to do. I spend hours crafting my sentences. I sometimes look up from it and say, what am I doing here? Is this any way for a grown man to be passing his days? But the sentence is a remarkable thing. I've said many times that if I were to be asked what's the greatest invention of humankind, I would say it's a sentence. There have been great civilizations, the Aztecs or the Incas, I can't remember which. They didn't have the wheel, but they had to have the sentence because they couldn't have made a civilization without it. The sentence is what we think with, what we speak with, we declare love in, what we declare war in. It's what we, our laws are made from, sentences. And it's a great privilege to spend my life working in this essential medium of being human. And in being human, you have to accept failure. You have to accept defeat. And then you have to continue on. You're, you clearly have a very brilliant mind and are also very imaginative and very curious in the world. But I imagine that can be a heavy burden as well. Well, it's difficult, of course. Anybody who's ever written a letter or a, a recipe or anything, anything you try to do in language is always difficult. Language is a very recalcitrant medium. I always think that the world is round, but language is square. Fitting the two of them together is very difficult indeed. It's a fascinating 
thing to try to do. And of course, perfection is not in this world. We're after perfection, but we never get it. And as Beckett said, I mean, David Norris by now has made it into a cliche, you know, fail again, fail better. But this is all the artist can do. And rationally, we know that we're not going to make a perfect work of art. But there's another part of the brain that somehow believes that this time it will be perfect. It's a childish position to be in. It's sort of like a child covering his eyes and imagining that nobody can see him. It's as silly as that. But this is one of the essays.